everyone. My name is Haley Elizabeth, and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can head over to the YouTube channel Haley Elizabeth and watch the visual version every Wednesday, or you can go to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. And in today's case, we are going to be talking about the case of James Bulger. Now, there is a lot to get through, so we are just going to hop right into it. James Bulger was born on March 16th, 1990 in Liverpool in Merseyside in England. He was born to his mother, Denise, and his father, Ralph. And Denise and Ralph would actually call James their miracle baby because actually back in 1988, Denise attempted at having a child to which she actually gave birth to that child, but that child was unfortunately a stillborn and died a little bit after giving birth. So this completely traumatized Denise and Ralph. They felt like they were way too scared to have another kid in fear of going through that pain again. And so they didn't have a child for many many years until 1990 where they were pregnant with James and when James came out super happy and healthy they were just so relieved to have a baby of their own. James as a child was the happiest baby on earth. He had this bright blonde hair with bright blue eyes and a lot of people would say that every time you saw James he was either laughing or dancing or just playing with his toys. He loved to be outside and super active. A lot of his relatives would also say that James had such a contagious laugh. His father would even go on to say that his laugh was quote music to my ears. And Jamie was just overall such a loved child because, as I said, since they already had a child that ended up passing away, Jamie, they just held so close to their heart. They loved him. They gave him so much love and attention. And James, in general, was just such a happy child. So then on February 12th of 1993, that is when Denise, Denise's friend, and James, who was two years old at the time, all went to the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle, Merseyside, aka The Strand. It's basically like an inside shopping center, like a mall. And so Denise's friend went off and kind of did her own thing. She just shopped at many of the stores there while Denise and James actually went to a deli that was in this mall to just pick up some food for the house. And so the entire mall trip, Denise was holding James's hand. And then when they actually got to the deli, she, you know, chose what she wanted. And then when she actually got to the cashier, she let go of his hand for just a minute and it was just so that she could take the money out of her purse give it to the cashier grab her meats and then hold his hand again but when she went to go reach down for James's hand she looked down and James was gone and so immediately naturally she starts panicking she starts looking around the deli she's freaking out she's going up and down the aisles and then she gets a hold of mall security she's telling them what's going on she says that you know she just let go of her son's hand for less than a minute to give money to the cashier and now he's gone she doesn't know where he's at and so the mall security is just trying to ease Denise's mind they're trying to calm her down they're saying you know this happens all the time you know kids tend to walk away from their parents but they always end up back with their parents this is extremely common I mean I myself and probably you as well remember a couple times as a kid losing your parent in the mall or in the store. But unfortunately, after about two hours of searching, they found no trace of James. The, the security also contacted all of the stores in the mall as well and let them know of the situation that was going on and let all of them know if they see a little boy with someone like a man or a woman or just wandering around to immediately call security. They also were checking the outside of the mall as well to see if maybe he had wandered outside and they searched up and down through the mall. They even searched the 
the bathrooms and there was just no sign of James. And so once the mall security had determined that James was not in the mall, that is when they called help from the outside police. And so the police of that neighborhood came to the mall and they started to search around the area of the mall. So they started to search um, on like the outside buildings. They started to search in nearby stores outside of the mall. Uh, There was also like canals and tunnels thinking that maybe he wandered off and fell into a river. So they were searching those areas. But unfortunately, there was still no sign of James. And so once the nighttime came around, that's when the police realized this was simply not just James walking away. This was definitely an abduction. So that night, that is when Denise had filed James as a missing person. And it wasn't until the next day of February 13th of 1993 where the police would get their first lead. It was the mall security that actually called them and said that when they were shuffling through the mall security footage, they they saw a small boy leaving with another young boy who looked to be around 13 to 16 years old. And when Denise was called to review the footage, she confirmed that that was indeed her James. And Denise already knew that this was indeed James. Just by the coat that he was wearing, the way that he was walking, the height as well, she knew that this was James. But it did ease her a little bit and put her at comfort knowing that James had walked away with a younger boy. Because in her mind, she's thinking, okay, this young boy probably just saw James walking around by himself and brought the little boy to his mother or his father father or maybe they you know took him home and pretended that they were you know his little brother or something so she felt pretty at ease and felt like he was probably in good hands somewhere And this was mostly because, you know, this was a young boy that James was walking away with. Now, if James was walking away with an older man or an older woman, this would definitely be more concerning. But the fact that it was a young boy, they they assumed that, you know, this boy probably meant no harm. So that is when that day, Denise went on the news and spoke out about James and said, you know, if you have James, if you know where James is, please just return him home. And the police and Denise thought that by speaking publicly about this, James would immediately come back. You know, she was assuming that he was in someone's house somewhere, completely safe and sound. But unfortunately, this did not do anything and no one called in with a sight of James. So when nothing came back, no leads, no concerned mothers, that is when the police were back at square one and they just needed to identify who exactly this little boy was. They determined the boy to be anywhere from 13 to 16 years old. And so they started asking around the area. They started asking around the mall, trying to get, you know, a better understanding of who this little boy was that walked away with James. That wasn't until the next day on February 14th of 1993, a couple of boys were playing near a railroad and in the distance, they spot something lying on the railroad track and when they approach what was on the railroad tracks, that is when the young boys would discover the body of two-year-old James Bulger. Kids were clearly traumatized and they ran home. They told their parents and their parents immediately told the police to which the police had blocked off that area and did confirm that this was James Bulger. James's body was found three miles away from the mall and so once they found James's body, they were no longer looking at an abduction. They were now looking at a murder. And because of this, all of Liverpool came together and really tried to find who this boy was that was holding James's hand. Everyone came together, the police, news outlets, magazine writers, everyone was searching for these young boys. And the news outlets, especially The Sun, was a very big, you know, prominent news outlet when covering this story and the news even released the security footage from the mall to the public to hopefully get more leads onto who this boy was. 
And during this time, over 60 different boys were being interviewed on suspicion that they were the one who abducted James. And all of these boys turned out not to be the one that they were looking for. And unfortunately, one of the boys, he was a 16-year-old boy and he was suspected of this crime, but... It was said that he actually had to flee Liverpool after his questioning, him and his family, because people found out that he was being questioned for the crime, and just because he was being questioned, people assumed that he was the person who did it, and so he was receiving constant death threats and a bunch of people, you know, just messing up his home, and it got so bad to the point where him and his family just had to leave Liverpool. So, a couple days go by and the police aren't really finding anything until they get another really big lead. A woman calls into the police station saying that she saw the security footage on the news and she notices that young boy to be 10-year-old John Venables. And ironically, she actually taught his class. So this was a really big lead because it was quite ironic that on the same day James is taken is the same day that John didn't go to school as well as his friend Robert, who were both 10 years old and around the same height as the height looked in the security footage. And so because of this, they look into John and Robert, they find out where they live, and they decide to go to their homes to question them. But the detective said that when he was going to the homes of John and Robert, he didn't really have high hopes of, you know, this being the criminal. He assumed that the person was between the ages of 13 and 16. I don't know if I mentioned, but they interviewed 60 boys remember but out of those 60 boys they were all between the ages of 13 and 16 and so the fact that these boys were 10 years old the detective just thought you know I'm just going to interview them and then clear them real quick this isn't going to be the actual criminal so that day one set of detectives went to John's house and then the other set of detectives went to Robert's house and they started questioning the boys about uh, John Bulger but the detective said that when he was talking to Robert about James Bulger, Robert just seemed to look very panicked as if, you know, he was sweating or he was about to cry. Then that's when the detective told Robert that he's going to need to take him into the station for questioning. And that is when Robert just started crying. He was freaking out. Of course, his whole family was also freaking out as well, his mother. But nonetheless, John and Robert were both taken to the police station to be interrogated in separate rooms. Now, a little bit of backstory on the boys. Robert Thompson grew up in a big family of seven boys with his mom and dad. His dad growing up was very, very abusive to all of his kids, but especially his wife or Robert's mother. He would openly cheat and would say to his wife, quote, if you complain about it, I'll just leave you with the kids. And so that was his biggest threat. If his wife made a fuss about him cheating, he would just take all of his money and leave. But eventually he did leave the family when Robert was very, very young, leaving the mother with seven boys to take care of all by herself. And the only money that the father had given her was just $5. And so due to her husband leaving her, this led to the mother um, frequently abusing alcohol She would also attempt at suicide multiple times and during all of this there was one day where the whole family was out and then when they came back home their house was on fire. So since their house had burnt down they needed to live in a hostel, all eight of them, and then afterwards they couldn't afford to buy a house again so instead they had to live in a small apartment, all eight of them. And so, since they were living in a very unfortunate situation, they were extremely poor. She was a single mother of eight kids. Because of this, the boys would act up quite frequently. It was mostly the older boys attacking the younger boys and just like abusing them, making them do things that they didn't want to do. The boys would also use a lot of drugs and alcohol as well as skipping school and shoplifting and as 
part of one of like the things that the older boys would do to the younger boys the older boys would actually threaten to beat up the younger boys such as robert if they even went to school and robert himself would frequently skip school i believe there was only 140 days of school that he needed to attend and he only attended 46 of those days so he was skipping school multiple times a week earning absolutely no education and he would spend most of his days either with his brothers or shoplifting sometimes he would shoplift for the home he would shoplift for food for his family, uh, diapers for his younger brothers, or toys for his younger brothers, toys for himself. And then one day while the mother was drunk, that is when she got into an argument with one of her sons and this led to her hitting one of her sons. And this was the first time that the mother had laid hands on one of her children. And so when this happened, one of the sons had called Child Protective Services and basically just told them, please help us. We need to get out of this house. And so Child Protective Services did show up but only took away two of the seven children. Both of these boys were put into foster care, but it was said that later in life, both of these boys actually attempted at suicide due to all of the trauma that they had endured as children. And so that is the life that Robert grew up in. That was his reality. That is how he lived every single day. And as for John, he had a very similar yet opposite situation. John grew up as a middle child. He had an older brother and a younger sister, and both his brother and sister had learning disabilities. However, John did not have a learning disability. He had gone through many evaluations and testings, and he just didn't have any learning disabilities. He also grew up with his mother and his father, and his father was very strict, but he was very traditional in his ways in that, um, like, the father or the man would typically go out and get a job and earn money for the family while the mother or the woman stayed home to take care of the kids, and that's how their life was. Uh, their mother stayed home with the kids all day while his father was gone most of the time. His mother's name was Susan, and when John John was a year old, Susan's father or the children's grandfather actually passed away and this was very, very hard for Susan because she was very close with her father but she also felt terrible for her mother and she didn't want her mother to go through this alone so that is when she took the three kids and all of them moved in with her mother. As for John's father, however, he did not move in with um, Susan's mother Susan and the three kids he actually continued living at the same house I'm not sure why they lived in two separate houses but during this time Susan said that they were still married so since John had to move, uh, he was put into a new school. So John went to a public school while his brother and sister went to a special ed school. And since he was all alone at this new school, he would frequently get bullied a lot. Uh, he would get bullied for his looks. He would get bullied for the way he talked. He also got bullied for his siblings and their special needs. And during this time, John would also exhibit a lot of mental health concerns concerns such as outbursts of anger, rocking back and forth and mumbling to himself, banging his head against desks, and crying most of the day. And this led to the mother being called into the office just to, you know, ask her a couple of questions and let her know what is happening with John because clearly these are not normal things for a child to be doing. And when the mother, Susan, was called in, Susan was like, actually, Actually, I'm not surprised he's doing this at school because he's doing the same thing at home and the teachers are like okay well maybe we should do something but Susan actually said that she believes that since John is being bullied at this new school he's trying to act different or he's faking it so that he would be transferred into his brother and sister's school which was a special needs school in hopes of not getting bullied as much and just being in a safe environment every day. 
And as a side note, this is a very talked about topic right now, like people faking mental illnesses, physical illnesses, or disabilities. And this is very prominent on TikTok, especially a lot of people have been caught um, faking mental illnesses or physical illnesses. But I feel like if John or any of those people may or may not be faking their mental illnesses, faking a mental illness is an illness in and itself. There's, it's not, you know, fine and healthy to be pretending you have a mental or physical illness that you do not have. There's clearly an underlying issue when it comes to that. And so for John, if he was faking it, like Susan said, there is a reason why he's acting like that. There is a reason why he's acting up and it's probably because he's getting bullied in school. He doesn't want to go to an environment every day where he feels terrible about himself where kids don't like him. Why would you want to go to an environment like that every day? And so John is clearly just doing everything in his power, as much power as he has for a six-year-old boy, to not go to this place anymore, to show the teachers that something is going on and maybe he is creating outbursts to get the attention of others so that he could then be put in a better situation. And so that's personally what I feel John was doing as a young kid, he just wanted to have a better experience with school. He wanted to go into an environment every day where he wasn't being bullied and he felt that if he went into a school with his brother and sister, then he would be in a more familiar environment. He would have his brother and sister by his side and he wouldn't get bullied as much. So clearly there was something going on with John. He needed some sort of therapy, some sort of evaluation, some sort of something to help with his condition and what he was doing. Again, even if he was hypothetically faking it, that in and itself is a problem that should be looked at. But instead, Nothing came of this situation. John just continued going to school. No therapies were given. No evaluations were made. And due to this, John, his behavior just eventually got worse to the point where he would damage school property. He would hide from his teachers under tables in places where the teachers could not reach. He was banned from going to all of the school trips. He would harm himself with scissors and even attempted at strangling a fellow student with a bendy ruler. Now, after this, that's when the teachers just said enough is enough. He's clearly a danger to other students and they suspended him for two days. Days. Now, he was supposed to be suspended for two days, but Susan decided to hold him back for 10 weeks. And so, after the 10-week period, that is when Susan just decided to send John to a different school. And it was at this different school in this specific classroom where John Vendables would meet his soon-to-be best friend, Robert Thompson. Due to Robert's absences, he actually had to be held back a year. And then also due to John's absences, he missed 10 weeks of school when he entered into his new school he also had to be held back a year so Robert and John were the oldest in their class and so naturally they became friends through that but once they really started to get to know each other they realized that they had very similar home lives both of them had a mother that didn't really care about them they didn't have a father figure in their life they didn't have many friends they were getting bullied at home and in school and so due to this, the boys tended to cope with these things together by acting out together. So they would shoplift together, they would damage public property together, and that is how the boys met and that is how they became friends. And so now we're bringing it back to the point in the story where the kids are suspected of the murder of James Bulger and they're currently in separate interrogation rooms being questioned by police. During Robert's interrogation, specifically, the police said that Robert was very difficult to question because every time he would attempt at saying a story, he would just start crying to the point where the police realized that Robert wasn't even crying real tears. He was just kind of making the sounds of crying rather than actually crying. And one of the detectives on the case even said that when he noticed Robert wasn't actually crying, it sent chills up his spine because 
because he had never seen a kid who is suspected of murder or in a police interrogation room cry fake tears before. But during Robert's interrogation, he kept on saying that taking James was purely all John's idea. John was the one who was holding James's hand. It was John's idea to abduct James and it had nothing to do with Robert. Robert also said that he begged John to take James back to his mother, but John refused and it was also John that led James and him to the railway. But John, on the other hand, purely just told police that he wasn't there at all. He told police that he wasn't at the mall, that he wasn't even anywhere near the mall, that he never saw James, he never took James, and as I said, John is a 10-year-old boy, so he doesn't know about security cameras or that the police were filming him or anything. He just thinks that if he says he wasn't there, then the police are going to believe him. And John's interrogation, similar to Robert's interrogation, he continuously cried and cried, which led the police to get nowhere with a story of how James's body ended up on the railway. John kept on crying and he hugged his mom. He was hugging police officers and and he kept on telling to his mom, quote, we never grabbed a kid, mom. And so John is crying, Robert is crying, and the police are second guessing themselves. They're like, okay, these are clearly little boys. They don't know what's going on. They have no clue what we're talking about. What if we really do have the wrong guys? But it wasn't until one detective in particular was reviewing the security footage and he noticed that the boy that was holding James's hand was wearing a mustard yellow colored winter coat. And so the next day when the boys came back into questioning, the detective asked John, hey, what color is your winter coat? And that's when John replies, I don't know, it's like a yellow mustard color. And so it was in that moment where the detective realized that this was indeed the boy that took James. So after two days of interrogations, that is when Robert and John would slowly start to confess not the full story, but portions of the story. Robert would say that they took James from the mall and they walked up to the railroad tracks and it was at the railroad tracks where Robert would witness John repeatedly assaulting James and it got to a point where Robert felt like it was way too much and he just turned around and went home. Robert said that he never touched James and he didn't even watch James die. He last saw James alive when he turned around to walk home. But in John's story, he blames it all on Robert, and he says that Robert was not only assaulting James, but was even throwing bricks at him. But after a little bit more investigating, that is when the police knew for a fact that Robert and John were equally involved in the abduction and assault of James, because after investigating a couple of their items at home, the police found blood on John's shoe, and that blood matched up with James's blood meaning that John was indeed there when James had died. They also found DNA matches found on James that belonged to Robert as well, again pointing Robert to the time of the crime. And so once they found the evidence that linked the boys to the crime, the police were able to get a full story of what happened and that day both boys were arrested and charged for attempted abduction, abduction, and murder. November 1st of 1993 is when the trial began and during this time, Robert and John's name were not available to the public because they were 10 years old. The only thing that the public knew was that they were both 10 years old and they were labeled as child A and child B. And on the day of the trial, there were over 500 people that showed up to the courtroom that day and a lot of people were throwing things at the vans as they drove in. A lot of people showed up with signs. They were protesting and screaming. 
And the courtroom said that at that time, they only had 44 available public seats. Yet again, over 500 people showed up, even with some people camping outside so that they could get one of the seats that was inside of the courtroom. And it was mostly because a lot of people wanted to know what these boys looked like. All they knew was that they were child A and child B, but they didn't know who they were, what their names were, what they looked like. And so on the day of the trial, when Robert and John had to take the stand to talk for themselves, um, it was said that at the stand, usually like where the criminal stands, they actually had to include a booster floor because these kids were so tiny that they couldn't even see over the ledge of the podium. They had to install a floor so that they could see above the podium because Robert was only 4'6 and John was 4'7 and for reference, a hockey net, the height of a hockey net is 4 feet. So that's how tall these boys were. They were tiny and that's what honestly made this crime so much more bone chilling because of how tiny and young these boys were and they committed the most horrendous and inhumane of crimes and it was actually at the trial where for the first time the police would reveal the full story of what happened that day. I don't usually give content warnings for my videos just because I feel like all true crime tends to be very graphic no matter what you watch but this in particular is extremely graphic and all of this does happen to a two-year-old boy and so for this I am going to give a content warning. It is very terrifying. Um, I won't go into graphic graphic detail. I'll just say the main idea of what happened but even just the main idea, just the context of what happened is very hard to digest and so just wanted to say that real quick before I go into the timeline of events. So that day, John was actually chosen that week to go to school to take care of class gerbils. And so on his way to school, that is when John bumped into his friend Robert. John and Robert started talking, but Robert had convinced John to skip school that day so that they could go to the mall and shoplift. They went to the mall that day and shoplifted specifically blue paint, but the boys eventually got bored because they shoplifted all all the time especially from that mall and that is when John had turned to Robert and said quote let's grab a kid and prior to Robert and John abducting James they actually attempted at abducting another boy beforehand but that boy was able to escape Robert and John and the boys were caught by the little boys's mother so that didn't work out until they discovered James and was able to successfully abduct James. The boys took James out of the mall and walked around the mall for hours and the entire time James was crying because James was scared. He didn't know where his mom was. He didn't know who these boys were and throughout that entire hours and hours of walking, no bystanders whatsoever walked up to the boys and asked them what was going on. No one asked them why this little boy was crying. No one asked why this little boy was calling for his mama. No one said anything. But the boys' initial plans was not to go to the railroads. John initially wanted to grab a kid so that they would push the little boy in front of a moving car. But for some reason, that plan didn't go out the way that they wanted it to go. So instead, they changed their plan and wanted to take James to a nearby canal and drown him. But something happened at the canal where they weren't able to throw James into the canal and at one point I'm assuming during a struggle James had fallen over and hit his head to which James started bleeding and crying even more and that is when John had made the suggestion of going from the canal up to a railroad that was not too far away. 
from the canal to the railroad, it was a three mile walk. And it was said that throughout that three mile walk, there had been 38 witnesses that had seen John and Robert holding the hands of bloodied and crying James, yet only six of those people actually went up to the boys and asked them what was going on. When the boys were approached by people, they always had a story. One of their stories said that this was their little brother and they were taking him home because he had fallen over. Um, one of their stories was that they didn't know who this boy was, but they were going to take him to the nearby police station. And I think the most heartbreaking about all of this is that James was a baby. He was two years old and at two years old, you cannot speak. You can't say things. Although all of this trauma and all of this, you know, what he's feeling is going on around him, he can't speak anything. He can't tell people what's going on. All he can do is call out for his mom or call out for his dad and say the couple of words that he knows because he doesn't know how to defend himself. He doesn't know how to talk to people. And so his only way to defend himself is to just cry and say the few words that he knew, like cry out for his mom or cry out for his dad. And that's just the most heartbreaking part about all of this. That is when the boys would continue their three-mile walk up to the railroad and Robert and John would continue and have equal parts in doing their torture and assault of two-year-old James. Again, I am not going to go into graphic detail, but I will just say the main idea of what they had done. Earlier that day, as I said, they the boys had stolen blue paint and so it was seen from James's body that the boys had thrown blue paint into his left eye. They also found blue paint on Robert's shoe, indicating that Robert was probably the one who did this part. Both of the boys would continue to beat James as well as throwing bricks at him, to which these bricks James had sustained 10 skull fractures. There was also believed to be some sort of SA due to because when James was found, he was found without pants and underwear. The boys would also take batteries and put batteries in his mouth. And it was said that the boys just continued to assault and torture James until he was eventually beaten to death. The boys then knocked out James, weighed him down on the tracks, and waited for a train to come by and run him over. So the boys had weighed him down, laid him there, and just walked away as if nothing happened. And unfortunately, a train did come by. And the day that the young boys that were playing around the railroad track found James's body, his body was indeed severed in half. The family of James did attend this court hearing and it was said that the family kept on having to leave the room after hearing all of the gruesome details of what happened to James and the way that he had passed away. Um, there, The family was understandably hysterical. They were crying. They were yelling. They were in shock. And as well as Robert and John's families as well, they were in complete shock that their boys would do something this horrendous. And after 17 days, a verdict was finally made that both boys who were 11 years old at this point were found guilty for the murder of James Bulger, making them the youngest murderers in UK history in 250 years. And both boys were sentenced to a minimum of eight years. It was said that when the verdict was given, Robert started to cry hysterically while John had absolutely no emotion and simply just glared at the detectives. And when the detectives glared at him back, that is when John realized that Robert was crying and John himself started to cry as well. But again, not really crying, just making the noises of crying. The judge after this case also 
also made the decision to release the identities of the boys as well as the mugshots and school photos. So prior to this, they were just child A and child B, but now they were known as Robert Thompson and John Vendables. And due to this, obviously, eight years is not enough, and so there were tons of protests, and due to these protests, their eight-year sentences was up to 10 years. Um, as I said earlier, the news outlet The Sun was a very prominent news source when uh, covering this story, and so The Sun actually made a petition to raise the sentencings of the boys, and this actually worked. Their 10-year sentences then transformed to 15-year sentences, but due to legal restrictions, they weren't actually able to up their sentences to 15 years, so it eventually went back down to 10 years. As part of their prison time, it wasn't even a real prison. They were both put into child rehabilitation centers, into separate rehabilitation centers. Um, Robert was put into the Barton Moss Secure Care Center, while John stayed in the Red Bank Community Home. It was said that both boys started to exhibit extreme signs of PTSD and nightmares from the night of the murder, but the most frustrating part about this portion of the story is that both boys were basically living luxury compared to what they were living in before. Before, they both grew up in very abusive and poor homes, but now, while they were in these rehabilitation centers, they were both given good education, nice food, they were given therapies, they were given TVs, video games. John's rehabilitation center actually had a pool table that he could just easily play on with all of his friends whenever he wanted to. Robert, um, his rehabilitation center had a basketball court and a pool that he could literally just swim in anytime he wanted. He could play basketball with his friends and a couple times a month, the boys would actually even go outside of the rehab center and they would go shopping for clothes. Once a month, they would go out to the beach and then get McDonald's afterwards. And it's so frustrating because these boys, even though they were 11 years old, they were receiving no punishment for their crimes. They had to just basically live on as if nothing happened. They were not treated properly whatsoever. They weren't taught any sort of punishment. They weren't taught that their actions have consequences. And these boys were living better lives than they were before, and yet they did the most inhumane and gruesome of crimes to a two-year-old baby that could not speak to defend himself, to tell people what was going on. They tortured and watched this baby cry for hours and hours, and now as their punishment, they're playing pool with their friends and going to the beach and going shopping. And it was also said that since this case was a really big case in the UK, when the boys were put into their rehab centers, the police had told them that if any of the other boys in the center asked them what they were in there for, to tell them that they were in there for stealing cars and not for murder. So that, again, just shows how the police are trying to shove this under the rug as much as possible. It was very clear that specifically John, during uh, his stay at his center had learned nothing from his consequences, had absolutely no remorse because there was actually a report made that when John was 15 years old, he was caught having sex with a female member of the staff at the Red Bank to which this woman was accused of sexual misconduct and suspended as well as allegedly never returning to work. In 1999, when both boys were 16 years old, their sentences were reviewed and the court had made a verdict for the boys to be released six months later in the year 2000. So, turns out their 10-year sentence 
wasn't even a 10-year sentence. And even their eight-year sentence wasn't an eight-year sentence because they ended up getting out after seven years. And then in June of 2000, that is when Robert and John were both released on probation and given new identities with new birth certificates, new passports, just again, as if nothing ever happened. But when they were released, they were released on probation. And as part of their probation, Robert and John were not to contact one another. And even if one day they find out who their false identities were, they were still not to have any contact with each other. They were not allowed to contact James's family, even if it was to apologize, as well as being banned from the entire Merseyside County. And as far as the aftermath, it unfortunately is just as bad and it's exactly how you would imagine if a child murderer got no punishment for his crime and then was released back into society. But in 2013, two men by the name of Dean and Neil actually found the adult identities of both John and Robert and also their new names. So they had posted their new names and adult identities to Facebook and Twitter to which the two men were almost put in jail for doing so because apparently in January of 2001 both Robert and John were given an injunction that quote prohibits the solicitation or publication of any information that identifies their physical appearance whereabouts movements or new identities meaning that even if you were to find their new identities there's some like legal something where you could actually be jailed if you release their identities to the public because it is considered private information but throughout my research i actually did find where the two boys are at now today as of 2022 and i won't say their new names or what they look like but what i will say is john vendables at this point is 40 years old and He's not that hard to find like what his new face is. Literally, you just Google John Vendables now or John Vendables Twitter. You'll find his face quite quickly. But I do want to say I don't know for sure if that is John Vendables. No one really knows for sure if that really is John Vendables. The only thing that people have is similarities in physical appearances from the childhood photo and the now photo. There was also one man in particular by the name of David Calvert. David Calvert was accused of being John Vendables and received so many death threats until he finally came forward and said, I am not John Vendables. I am fearing for my life. Everyone is sending me all these death threats. So because of that, we we don't really know if those photos online are John Venables or if they are just regular innocent people and because there is the possibility that they are regular innocent people, it's not okay to go out of your way and harass them just for the possibility that they are just innocent regular people. But since being released in 2001, John actually has a very, very lengthy criminal record. Going from 2008, so in 2008, this is when John's alias was actually like well known about and well talked about. So that is where his criminal history had began, but I don't think that's where it had started. In September of 2008, John was arrested after a drunken brawl at a bar and then was given a warning by his probation service and then was later given a caution for the possession of of cocaine and for those who don't know in the UK um, from my understanding when you are given a caution it's very similar to if you were to be given a warning except a caution is that you almost went to jail but your offense was one a minor offense and two the offender had exhibited immense guilt for what they did so that means John didn't go to jail because cocaine is a minor offense all of a sudden and also apparently he was very guilty which I don't think he was because of what is to follow. In February of 2010, John was put into jail after hoarding child abuse images which is so 
sick and nauseating considering what he did as a 10-year-old boy. In July of 2010, he was only sentenced to two years after admitting to downloading and distributing indecent images of children. Three years later, he was released from prison after his parole officer had recommended his release. Four years later, in November of 2017, he was put back into prison again for CP. And then in February of 2018, the following month, he was sentenced to 40 months or a little over three years after he admitted to possessing over 1,000 indecent images of children. So 1,000 images of CP and he only got a little over three years. But that's unfortunately not where it stops because that same month in February of 2018, he had admitted to owning a pedophile manual that instructed him on, quote, how to have sex with little girls at the Old Bailey. So the Old Bailey, for context, was the prison that he was staying at. So that means whilst John was in prison, he was still committing the crimes that he went to prison for. And then February 18th of 2018, um, apparently some inmates at John's prison had been figuring out his real identity, that he was the John Venables and not this alias that he went by and due to this it understandably upset a lot of inmates to where one of the inmates had poured boiling water over him and the following month in 2018 and this is very infuriating it was revealed that the killer john had been begging for plastic surgery at the taxpayer's expense Benz, after photos allegedly identifying him were leaked online. So apparently, people started to figure out what he actually looked like and he wanted plastic surgery at the taxpayer's expense. Taxpayer. I'm a taxpayer. You're a taxpayer. Apparently, he wants us to pay for his plastic surgery so he could live, what, a nice life? Two months later, in May of 2018, that is when James Burglar's dad, Ralph, uh, tried to argue with the court to release the current names of John and Robert. He believes that it is not fair that John is still anonymous after years and years of collecting CP, distributing it, downloading it. Even in prison, he was still indulging in it, and yet he still gets to be anonymous, which I, and hopefully you as well, completely agree with. I feel like if John reoffends and reoffends, why is the government still protecting him? John is not a 10-year-old boy anymore. He is completely capable of making his own decisions and knowing from right and wrong. Again, he's not a 10-year-old boy anymore. I don't know why they're still trying to protect him and his anonymity. And also, another thing he actually, John, had to change his name twice, so he had to get a new identity twice because his first identity, he had told people that he was the John Vendables, and because of that, he had to change his name because he had boasted to all of his friends about how he was a murderer, so clearly, he has no remorse for what he did. He's disgustingly proud of what he did to the point where the government had to pay, aka us, had to pay for him to get a new name. And then as of recently in September 29th of 2020, that is when John had attempted at parole but was denied and was able to apply for parole again in two years, 2022. And the furthest I could find with a 2022 parole hearing is back in February. There was a date set in August and I don't know, unfortunately, if that parole hearing ever happened or what the results of that parole hearing was. Um, I'm assuming that The Sun, because The Sun it was like a really big news outlet, even to this day, they are still putting out updates as of 2021 about the case. And so I'm assuming if John was released, they would have 
put something out about it, but I haven't seen anything. I don't know what happened from that parole hearing, but all we can do is hope and pray that he's still in prison. And so that is where John Vendables currently is at now. And clearly, John has no remorse for what he did. He has learned nothing from what he did because even as an adult, he's still looking at CP from what he experienced as a child. So that's as much as I could find on John Vendables as far as today in 2022. But as far as Robert Thompson, as far as I could find, he currently resides in the Northwest where he is openly gay and he is with a long-term partner whom he lives with and that partner is aware of his real identity. Since 2001, uh, Robert has not reoffended. He has not been in jail. He has not been in trouble with the police. But today, he continues to live an anonymous, quiet life. As far as the boys that discovered James's body, one of the boys that discovered James's body, even to this day, says that it still affects him. Since then, he has lived a very tough life and has been in and out of prison. And he says that most of it stems from the horror of finding James's body that day. In 2018, a short film titled Detainment about the death of Jamie Bulger was released and even got an Oscar nomination. The film included real interrogation transcripts of the 10-year-old boys, but the mother was actually not aware of this short film. And not only was she not aware of this short film, this short film was Oscar nominated. And so she had put up a petition in trying to to get the Academy to take off this short film. But unfortunately, the Academy did not listen and to the day of the Oscars, it was still being nominated. But thank goodness the short film did not win. As far as Denise and Ralph now, uh, they both did get a divorce, but Denise is now known as Denise Fergus because she got remarried as well as Ralph. He also got remarried and has children of his own. Bringing it back to 2013, once again, Ralph actually made a book titled My James, where he talks about his son James, the life that James lived, as well as his murder and the court trials. And honestly, it's overall a really, really good book. I 100% recommend reading the book. And I actually wanted to end off on an excerpt from his book. In this portion of the book, he is writing a letter to James in heaven from himself, Ralph. And I think this portion is so, so powerful so I wanted to end off the video with this. Not a day goes by that I don't think about you. From the moment I wake up in the morning to the time I shut my eyes at night, you are with me and I hope you can still feel me with you. I try not to think about all the horrible things that happened to you that day and try to concentrate on your lovely smile and the glorious sound of your laughter. That was the best music I've ever heard and I want to be able to hear it for the rest of my life. You were a joy to be with, James, and I miss you every single day. Whatever happens now, I want you to know that I have tried with all of my heart to fight for you. I will keep on with the battle just so that you know how much you meant to me. Your dad is so sad without you, lad, and that's because you were very special to everyone who was lucky enough to meet you. You made me the happiest man alive and the proudest father on earth. I sometimes thought my heart would burst with joy when I watched you play or held your hands when you were sleeping. I hope that you knew how much we all loved you and that you were happy for the few short years you spent with us. You will always travel with me in my heart. Love, your Ralph. And that is the end of today's video. If you found this story interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe. If you want to follow me on any of my socials, like my Instagram, that will be linked down below, as well as my PO box if you want to send me anything, and as well as well, all of the research that I use uh, for this video, including Ralph's book, will all be linked in the description box below. And yeah, that is the end of today's case. The story was so 
terrifying and inhumane and sickening and nauseating to read about and again like all the victims that I talk about when doing these videos I feel like it's more important to know who the victim was on earth and not how they left it and James was a sweet two-year-old boy you know he was laughing and playing all the time he loved his mother he loved his father and his parents loved him just as much I mean James was their miracle baby and so they absolutely loved James and I feel like that's how James should be remembered. But I would love to hear your guys' thoughts about the case down below. If you really have any thoughts, um, as I usually say, all my research is linked down below. So if you, you know, go ahead and do your own research and you find something in your research that I did not find in mine or that I simply did not mention, make sure to leave that in the comments below. I'm pretty sure everyone here will be interested in what you have to say, as well as all of your, you know, thoughts, questions, concerns. Do you believe that if John was given therapy at a very young age it would have prevented his criminal lifestyle or do you think he was just born that way do you think that Robert and John should have gotten life in prison although they were 11 years old when they were convicted do you think they should have been sent to prison instead of a rehabilitation center again let me know your thoughts below and that's all from me and I will see you guys next week make sure to be safe out there go outside today, read a good book, get some fresh air, tell someone you love them today, even if that someone is yourself, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.